Welcome to the Idaho Reports podcast for October 20th. I'm Melissa Davlin. This week, the legislature's Joint Finance and Appropriations Committee meets for their fall interim meeting, where they hear updates on revenues, stimulus funds, and budget requests from state agencies. On Tuesday afternoon, Clark Corbin of the Idaho Capital Sun and Ruth Brown of Idaho Reports join me to discuss the state of Idaho's budget and what the needs are. Thanks so much for joining me today. Clark, I wanted to start with you. Can you give me a broad overview of where we are with the state budget? Yeah, I mean, I think the takeaway message from this first day of JFAC meetings at the state capitol was that the state of Idaho is sitting on record historic piles of cash. When you add up the ending year balance coming out of the fiscal year 21, when you add up uh, the amount that we're already ahead of revenues, for the first quarter of the current fiscal year 22 budget. Um, we're looking at if everything you know, stays on track with the current projections, winding up with $1.45 billion uh, in ending balance at the end of the 2022 budget year. A lot of that is coming off a record surplus in 21, right? And, and so we're starting out the new budget year with a huge cash carryover. Um, on top of that, we have tons of, of stimulus money, federal stimulus money that came in through several different federal packages uh, approved and the state bolstered its rainy day funds. We heard that the budget stabilization fund uh, today is at the highest level that it's been uh, in state history. So between the cash balance, surplus rainy day savings accounts, projected ending balance at the end of 2022, just sitting on an unprecedented amount of money uh, Keith Bybee, one of the Legislative Services Office budget analysts, said it's an extreme amount of money. I don't think that any of us ever ever expected that. And so it really is almost I almost get lost trying to get track, keep track of what the exact amount is, but historically unprecedented amounts of money in, in savings and, and ending balances right now uh, that the state is seeing. I want to talk about the needs that the state has soon, but let's focus on the American Rescue Plan Act money and the latest with that. Ruth, can you get us up to speed? Sure. So they did a rundown of the requests that they are seeing for both the fiscal year 2022, which we're currently in, and the request they'll see for fiscal year 2023. And it's an astronomical amount of money. Um, so far, uh, they have received $904 million in requests for fiscal year 2023. Of course, most of those are from the Department of Health and Welfare, whether it be for funding for testing, funding for childcare, applying the money for home providers that uh, accept Medicaid. It's, it covers a broad range of issues. I think it's also important, important to keep in mind that the federal government under both the Trump administration and the Biden administration passed several uh, federal packages for COVID relief. And so uh, you had the CARES package, you had the ARPA package, there were packages for education that basically were an effort to keep schools open at all costs. So collectively, it is an astronomical amount of money that they are dealing with hopefully in an effort to combat coronavirus and keep hospitals surviving, I guess, is the term that I would use at this point, keep them surviving and open. It, it covers a broad range. I would say today's presentation was... Uh, Off the hook, would you say? 
like most JFAC no. meetings. No, it That's wasn't off the hook. Oh yeah. No. I, I, I think most people, most close observers of the legislature would agree with me that JFAC is often off the hook, but you know, today was unique. We, we're talking on Tuesday afternoon and this was like a crash course in the latest in the state budget for these lawmakers. Usually the joint budget committee meets and they'll do a deep dive into one part of the budget over the course of several hours each day for the first half of the legislature. We didn't see that on Tuesday. We saw, like you said, Ruth, a broad overview of the biggest parts of Idaho's budget and also this infusion of cash from multiple different sources. Yeah, I, I was talking with Representative Wendy Horman, who's an Idaho Falls Republican, uh, who's been on JFAC for, I think, about seven years. And she talked about how these off-season interim meetings, which is what we're having right now today, are really an opportunity to get geared up ahead of the legislative session. I mean, Melissa, you and I and Ruth know that JFAC is one of the legislature's largest and hardest working committees. Uh, they meet daily, every morning. Uh, each day, like you said, they have budget hearings and then they move into budget settings it's a joint committee so we're talking members of the idaho senate and members of the idaho house of representatives but when i talked with representative horman this was all about taking three days this week to take these deep dives and really get geared up uh, for a 2022 legislative session and therefore setting the 2023 budget and we got a sense of how complicated all of this is going to be with all this money involved still a lot of uncertainty still a lot of needs that need addressing and, and, and problems out there so this was all about getting geared up for this next session when we'll really see a lot of actions um you know taking place and then we'll actually really find out where the money's going how it'll be carved up let's talk a little bit about those needs we know that one of the most urgent needs right now in the state is housing whether you're in treasure valley or north idaho or eastern idaho the cost of of living has gone up so much what are you hearing about emergency rental assistance ruth sure so the federal government passed an emergency rental assistance package they passed two actually Brady Ellis with the Idaho Housing and Finance Association did a presentation today. He uh, outlined that uh, they've helped roughly 15,000 people in nearly 4,000 households get uh, assistance. Idaho was allocated about $176 million for rental assistance. Brady Ellis was mentioning that the association has been notified that programs that have spent less than 30% of the money that they were allocated could be forced to um, hand that money back to the federal government and it would be allocated to states where individuals are in need. So because we were allocated $176 million, we've used a little over 14 million, that is less than 30% of what we were allocated. So I think Brady Ellis and the Housing Finance Association are preparing for that, they're aware. Um, he did stress that they are really trying to reach out to both landlords and tenants who may be in need, especially those who are in the eviction process. Once you're sort of in this cycle of eviction, it's hard to get out of it. It's hard to get new renters. And so largely the Housing uh, and Finance Association tries to stop that before it starts. So, but that is something that will be an issue the legislature will need to address, especially if uh, we lose some of the funding that we were initially allocated. This is what confuses me because it, it seems 
like every week there are more stories about renters in Idaho who are having trouble paying their rent, who are losing their housing because they can't afford these steep increases. Where's the disconnect between the amount of money that the state has access to for rental assistance and the Idahoans who are in very real need right now? So Brady Ellis talked about this a little bit. Um, I think when folks come to the uh, Housing and Finance Association, it's not because their rent has increased. It's because uh, they cannot afford uh, or find available housing at all. And if rent increases, that's another problem in itself. But uh, as far as what the disconnect is, I don't know that you could pinpoint that on one thing. Um, specifically, the emergency rental assistance program is for people who were affected by COVID-19. So if you're a single parent who uh, can't afford the rent in Boise, that's entirely understandable. But if the reason you can't afford the rent in Boise is not connected to COVID-19, I don't know that you would necessarily uh, qualify it for it, but the Housing and Finance Association is really stressing um, that people should reach out and talk to them. I believe they have a hotline and uh, they've changed their website. So uh, it can, there isn't a, a real clear line on um, what the correlation is. Clark, let's talk about education. Um, this is something that you followed closely over the last several years, first with Idaho Ed News and now with Idaho Capital Sun with your coverage. Um, let, what were some of the highlights of the education discussion today? I think when we talk about the proposals for next year's budget with education, the big thing that's on the table right now is a proposal for optional all-day kindergarten in the state of Idaho. Where things stand today, uh, kindergarten's optional and the state only pays for half day. And that was something that dates back to the late, C the late Governor Cecil Andrus really fought hard uh, to get optional half day kindergarten established in Idaho. This proposal, the State Board of Education signed off earlier this year, endorsing a proposal uh, for optional full day kindergarten across the state. We went into Superintendent of Ybarra, Superintendent of Public Instruction, Sherry Ybarra's budget request today. Uh, she does have funding in there um, for the 2023 budget for all day kindergarten. It looks like about $39 million or so uh, when you add everything up. And so that will be one of the the big things to watch for during this upcoming legislative session, the State Board of Education, who has worked very closely with Governor Brad Little, has already come out in favor of this. Uh, you know, as you know, Governor Little has put a lot of emphasis on education, especially childhood literacy around uh, ages kindergarten through third grade. So it'll be really interesting. I'll be watching the governor's state of the state address in early January to see if the governor comes out. Uh, full strength behind the all-day kindergarten recommendation and what his budget proposal is. I think that's one of the main, most interesting things to watch for. Another thing I might be looking at is there's a request to increase pay for classified employees in the school districts. Those are your professionals who are not classroom teachers. There's a request to increase their pay by 5% to kind of bring it up to compete uh, with more of the private sector. Those are kind of two of the many things that I'll be watching this year on the education front. When we're talking about full day kindergarten, we're not just talking about the money. We're also talking sometimes about philosophical differences when it comes to early childhood education and that first year in public school. 
Yeah, the legislature, Melissa, as we know, has resisted uh, a lot of calls for, you know, certainly any kind of state funded pre-K education, but thus far has resisted moving to full day. Uh, among uh, conservative Republicans for years, the argument has kind of been that Idaho families are best suited to handle the education uh, of their young children. That may be changing a little bit. There may be more movement um, behind uh, early childhood education, behind all day kindergarten, uh, especially. It'll be interesting to see where the governor uh, comes down on this, uh, but th that may be changing, but we also know that it's not an option uh, for all families uh, to educate their young people at home. Uh, many families may face very different challenges and, and not have the time, the money, the resources to provide that uh, education at, at home. And so, uh, I think this is something that I've really seen gain a lot of momentum, particularly in the last year or two. Ruth, at the end of the day, Idaho Department of Correction Director Josh Tewalt presented, and there were multiple points that he made. What stood out to you? He had several uh, key points that he wanted to lay out. He will be requesting a larger budget this year than he has in uh, years prior for a couple of reasons. Um, in 2018 and in years prior, there have been lawsuits against uh, Idaho Department of uh, Correction, as well as their healthcare provider for the lack of treatment for hepatitis C. Um, for any listeners who don't know, the treatment of hepatitis C is very expensive. Uh, so there were lawsuits regarding uh, inmates not being treated quickly enough. The long and short is that there was a settlement and now uh, IDOC will need to treat all of those inmates. There's a little bit of a bottleneck because there are so many that need to be treated, but he will be requesting $10 million to treat the hepatitis C within his residence. Additionally, as of today, uh, Director T. Walt noted that there are about 200 open correctional officer positions. Um, correctional officers are the individuals who patrol the prisons. The reason for that is, I think, in all workforces, there has been a shortage of employees. People are demanding higher weighted wages. Wages are becoming more competitive. And traditionally, IDOC paid their guards a lower rate. They recently increased that rate up to $19 an hour. They also had signing bonuses and retention bonuses for staff that were already there. With that, I, he noted that recently they had more than 200 applicants um, for the position. They struggle, I think, because they also have to compete with local county jails, pay their um, deputies pretty well, at least in comparison to what IDOC was paying. There's also, especially in the Treasure Valley, Ontario is not that far away and there's a prison over there that pays pretty well. And so I think with his budget request, he will also need to factor in the cost of higher wages for his staff uh, and the parole officers. It's not just the correctional officers, but parole officers often generally make more uh, than the corrections officers. You know, there was one issue that I think a lot of people were listening for that didn't come up at all today, and that was a supplemental request from the lieutenant governor's office uh, regarding legal fees after a recent lawsuit from the Idaho Press Club. Full disclosure, uh, we're all members of the Idaho Press Club on this podcast. I'm the vice president of the podcast, or vice president of the podcast, vice president of the board, but I recuse myself from this particular lawsuit. Clark, you were very much involved with it. Can you um, just give us a brief overview for those who aren't familiar? 
Yeah, and Melissa, I'll always consider you the vice president of the podcast as well. But yeah, like you said, you did a nice job of, of teeing that up. This all has to do with legal bills connected to the Idaho Press Club's successful lawsuit uh, seeking the release of public records relating to Lieutenant Governor Janice McGeehan's education task force. I had filed a series of public records requests with the Lieutenant Governor's office trying to find out what her legal bills were for the case. Uh, our good friend James Dawson from Boise State Public Radio broke the story a few weeks ago that Lieutenant Governor McGeehan had requested a supplemental budget request. She's asking the taxpayers from Idaho to pay $50,000 to cover, her, to cover her legal expenses where she went outside of the Idaho Attorney General's office and retained her own private attorney, Colton Boyles from Boyles Law, to represent her in the case. I had filed a series of public records trying to find out what those legal expenses were, how she came up with her budget request. Uh, earlier this month, uh, Jordan Waters, the chief of staff for Lieutenant Governor McGeehan, wrote back to me and said that he could not find any legal voices. On Friday of last week, uh, Lieutenant Governor McGeehan responded to me on Twitter saying, we can't find what we don't have and we've never been given any invoices. And so what, what I'm trying to do, what a lot of reporters are trying to do is find out a little bit more about how she came up with that request. We know now uh, that the judge on the case has ordered her to pay the press club's legal fees and costs, and those come to about a uh, little less than $29,000. What we don't know is what uh, Lieutenant Governor McGeehan's own legal fees were and how she constructed that $50,000 request. Earlier this week, just on Monday, four Idaho Democrats, all four Democrats who sit on JFAC, sent McGeehan a letter saying they would like more information about the supplemental request. They would like copies of her legal invoices and how she plans to pay for this. They also asked for an unredacted copy of the agreement she has with her outside attorney. That's a document that the lieutenant governor almost completely blacked out all five pages when she released it uh, to the Idaho Capitol Sun and to the Idaho Press Club. And so it didn't come up today. A lot of people were kind of thinking this could be one of the main showdowns of this week's JFAC meeting. Uh, we did get into the state budget picture. We got into some supplemental budget requests. And then just everybody skipped over uh, the lieutenant governor's $50,000 request. And I mean, some context here, we are talking about $50,000 within a state budget that's like $4.2 billion. And so it's a very, very small supplemental request. But it's caught a lot of people's attention because of the transparency issues surrounding the original legal case. And just because as of right now, based on public records requests that the lieutenant governor has responded to, it's extremely difficult for the taxpayers and for the legislators who will have to vote on this proposal to find out what her legal bills are and how she came up with that request. No more clarity today on where things stand. It doesn't look like it's going to come up again. I guess it could come up at any time, but it's not on the agenda for later this week. And so we may not get any more answers until after the 2022 legislative session convenes in early January. I think it's fair to note that the state has been sued before, uh, whether by an advocacy group like Reclaim Idaho, by a private citizen, by an employee of the state. And when you sue the state, the taxpayer does pay for their legal defense. I think what makes Janice McGeehan's case unique is the, the lack of transparency around what her bills are, 
And the fact that she elected not to use the attorney general's office as representation, which is a more affordable rate than hiring private counsel. Yeah, Melissa, I actually obtained some email records late last week from the Division of Financial Management, uh, which is kind of like the state's budget shop. And I found a September email from a Division of Financial Management budget analyst who wrote to McGeehan's office and pointed out that state law requires Idaho uh, officers to be represented by the attorney general's office. That budget analyst requested an explanation uh, or any exemptions that the lieutenant governor would have used uh, to seek outside uh, legal opinion. Our friend Betsy Russell from the Idaho Press uh, had some follow-up coverage on that earlier this week. Um, but yeah, still not a lot of clarity. I mean, I think that's what a, a lot of these reporters, that's what you and I and, and Ruth and Betsy and, and, and James Dawson from Boise State Public Radio are trying to do is just give taxpayers a little bit more information about where these bills coming from, how much how much did she pay for her legal services? How much did the press club, how much were they, was she ordered to pay from theirs? And so I think that's, that's what we're doing uh, and running into some difficulties and some resistance, but it's about trying to give the taxpayers and, and certainly the legislators who will have to vote on these proposals, some transparent and some insight uh, into uh, what is a request for taxpayer money, however small that request happens to be. You know, and I'll, I'll note, I know that there has been some criticism of the press club for pursuing this lawsuit against Lieutenant Governor McGeehan uh, with people thinking that um, reporters are going after her because of her political views or something like that. But but I know, you know, even though I wasn't involved with this lawsuit, the lawsuit that I was heavily involved in a few years ago was under a Democratic county commission. You know, th this isn't an issue of partisan politics. This is reporters who are seeking government transparency for the sake of our readers and our viewers and our listeners. Yeah, I think that's a real good point uh, to bring up that, you know, I filed public records requests seeking records from Democratic officials. I filed public records requests from Republican officials. I filed public records requests from the governor's office and the lieutenant governor's office. And so this isn't an instance of where uh, she's being singled out. You know, Melissa and, and, and Ruth, Public records requests are a pretty common part of a, of a reporter's job, especially reporter covering topics like state government and politics. It's pretty common to file public records requests for expenses and documents. And, and that's what we're asking for here. And I know we've talked about uh, this before on, on the television version of Idaho Reports, but transparency, openness, open meetings and open records are kind of guiding principles for many, many reporters. We always say reporters try to remain objective and check our biases. Uh, openness, records, open meetings is one of those areas where we do weigh in and we do push for transparency and openness. And, and that's a great point. And it's like you said, I filed records requests uh, from Democrats, from Republicans, uh, from Superintendent Ybarra's office, from Governor Little's office, and from Lieutenant Governor McGeehan's office. And so it's not a case uh, where the Lieutenant Governor has been singled out for any reason whatsoever. But certainly a story we will keep watching. Clark Corbin, Idaho Capital Sun, Ruth Brown, Idaho Reports, thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks for having us.
Thanks for listening. You can read more coverage of the budget meetings at our blog. You'll find the link at idahoptv.org slash Idaho Reports. The new season of Idaho Reports starts October 29th, and it's our 50th season. Starting next week, you can watch Idaho Reports each Friday at 8 p.m. on Idaho Public Television. That's 8 p.m. in both time zones. Or you can catch it online after it airs at idahoptv.org. The Idaho Reports podcast is produced by Ruth Brown and myself, Melissa Davlin. Logan Finney is our editor. Thanks so much for listening. Presentation of Idaho Reports on Idaho Public Television is made possible through the generous support of the Laura Moore Cunningham Foundation, committed to fulfilling the Moore and Bettis family legacy of building the great state of Idaho. By the Friends of Idaho Public Television and by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.